Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology professor, and I'm a nutritionist and a former competitive bodybuilder. And this is Phil Stevens. Uh, I'm a competitive powerlifter, Highland Games athlete, uh, did strongman. I run Strength Guild and LiftForHope.org. And today we have with us Dan Ogborn. Uh, Dan has his doctorate in uh, medical sciences from McMaster uh, University up in Canada. Too bad Rob couldn't be with us here. Um, he has a background in kinesiology and exercise uh, physiology, and I believe he's working on a second master's now. Uh, we'll get back with Dan in just a minute. But, Phil, you had some uh, interesting sort of, uh, I don't know what kind of news you would call that, industry news? Yeah, industry news, I guess it is. Strength and Muscle Sport News. We had, and I, I had looked into this a tiny bit because there's, there's a bunch of rumblings going on about it. I never really went and read the, or listened to the YouTube until... Uh, Kyle Pounds came on and asked on the listener group. He was curious if next episode, if Lonnie or myself could comment on Boston Lloyd. He's a YouTube bodybuilder who breaks down his current cycles with clear description of what he takes. What I find interesting about this is he's only 21. I know you guys don't prefer to talk about interpersonalities, but I like your input. Input. Um, and he also says, "P.S. I set a new PR deadlift of 405 for five. Uh, congrats on the." deadlift um so i sat down and i watched this today and uh wasted 37 minutes of my life <laughs> uh, but no i mean really the only thing i have to say about it is uh, the guy just says what he did so um and yeah he's he's taking extreme amounts of of anabolics and you know other hormones he's he claims to be on 13 plus grams a a week. Wow. Um, and lists them all out. There's like four different uh, esters of testosterone and a bunch of trembolone and uh, Winstrol, both injectable and oral and yada, 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 yada. Um, I don't I don't know. I don't know what people are going crazy about because, you know, his, his aspirations are like to be Mr. Olympia. And uh, um it's pretty evident that that industry is 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 rampant with that. So well, at least he's I mean, not lying about it, I guess. Yeah, he's not lying about it. And he's just talking about it. he's doing what it takes, and he talks about you know the top level guys. You know, he's he's taking twelve IU's of GH a day and blah blah blah. You know, and it's uh, somebody's got to say it. You know, yeah. I will say I, this: I've never heard of such doses. Never. Yeah. Wow. And that's like I was telling you. I mean, I I met a former Mister Universe from the nineties, and he told me he was on, I think it was seven or eight grams a week. Um, which itself which is, is nutty. Yeah, yeah. So, but I mean, I don't find it unbelievable. You know, when you're looking at 300 pound mass monsters, now this guy isn't that big yet, but again, he's 21 and he talks about, you know, yeah, once you get your pro card, you're still five years out from having a chance. 
And right, yeah, you know, and at 21, you know, if you want to be the Mr. Olympia before the age of 30, I'm sorry. If you have aspirations to be Mr. Olympia when you're 30, you're going to have to start taking lots of drugs young. It's just true. Well, you know? it's true, and I'll tell you, one so. of the things they often don't discuss is it's also that non-cyclical, back-to-back kinds of recklessness that's required. You know, yeah. um, I've heard local and regional competitors, you know, talk, and they're not approaching anything like those kinds of, uh, you know, doses. But yeah. Even, most guys would still say that's so young. I mean, you even for the guys who choose to use. Yeah, I think a lot I mean, of them would say don't start quite so early because damn, yeah. you know, back to back cycles with arguably no off time. Like you're saying, you're basically ramping up all the time. Uh, yeah, to a professional status. Yeah, all the yeah. time. Right, right. And but I mean, I was talking to today actually, um, to a, a guy who was. That I know very well, and ten years ago, when in his late twenties, he was three hundred pounds and lean, and you know, so he was he was a bodybuilder, and uh, he was just laying it out. He's like, you know, the the professional bodybuilder cycles are directly relational to one thing, and that's their pocketbook. It's really the more you can buy, <laughs> you know? right, so yeah. um, that's the only thing that holds them back. Yeah. But, if I can ask Dan, are you familiar with uh, anabolic steroid abuse and that sort of thing, the doses that guys use? Well, I, I mean, the, the doses that this guy's taking do sound ridiculous. I don't think there's really no great way to get an accurate picture of what any of the, the pros are taking, right? Because most of them, they're not doing what this Boston Rob guy does and go on yeah, YouTube yeah. and literally tell us everything he's taking. But Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. so there's no real way to know, but I mean, if I were to wager a guess... There is probably a point of saturation, and you know it's going to be a dose-response relationship. And at some point, it's going to be saturated. Yeah. And you're not going to be deriving any benefit. And if anything, he's probably going to get uh, some detrimental effects from it down the road. But I mean, there's no way to know for sure, and you just have to kind of wait and see what happens to him. Yeah. No. I uncharted territory for sure. I think what stuns me is his, the openness uh, from a legal standpoint. I mean, if this guy's making confessions online. Um, mm-hmm. What keeps the authorities from just going to his house? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how how that happens. Like, I don't know either. But I've always wondered that about a lot of people in the industry that we know. We've talked about it before. <laughs> you know? And uh, yeah, I mean, if these guys, it, it doesn't require anything really clever. You'd think that some of these um, federal agents or whoever it was, they would just follow these guys home. I mean, how yeah. hard would it be? No. You know. But I, I mean, mean, I don't see why. What's the benefit in lying about it? You know, and that's what other people. There's a bunch of people going on the the video and and just saying bad crap, and then there's a few of them out there saying no, he's not telling, he's not giving a picture of the whole industry, he's just telling you what he did, you know, which is true. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, that's all he's doing. That's all he can tell you. You know, but, I, I, I mean, remember. I know for a fact from talking to you know, we've been privileged enough to be around some of these guys. They're doing a lot of stuff. You know, then that's the pick. That's the point. I exactly. I think is good. That and he's like he he says he dropped. He was sponsored. And he dropped his sponsors because he didn't want to be one of those guys that's telling you, you know, I take you know Nitro X and that's what got me jacked. He's like, no, I took freaking fourteen grams of test. So yeah. I mean, at least I give him props for that. Yeah, at least he's not furthering the <laughs> disservice to young guys who wonder why they're losers because they take yeah. Nitro X and they don't look like that. You know, exactly. 
Yeah, so. I, I can tell you one thing I was going to say was you're talking about some of the other people we've talked to. Rob and I have uh, talked to Dorian Yates a few times, and Dorian knows Rob, but Dorian, at least he didn't lie. Like people at, at little seminars and whatnot, they'd ask him what he's on, and he'd just look at him real flat and say, we both know I can't discuss that. Yeah. So, I mean, he wasn't going to divulge gory details, yes. but nor was he saying, you know, oh, muscle this and that powder is why I look like this. Yeah. You know, and that's a classy response, in my opinion. You well, know, yeah, at okay. least he's not lying. He's just saying, yeah. you know, get get real, kid. Yeah. You know. Exactly. That's like the one year, what was it, three, four years ago, they decided to test at the Arnold, and they were amazed that the guy who won got popped. Oh, God. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, I remember, God, in the 90s, they tested the Mr. Olympia. And it was a train wreck. Uh, Mike Christian uh, looked the best, and I think because he managed the masking agents best, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but it was um, everybody was small, smaller, much smaller, softer. You know, you could tell they had basically gotten off uh, just in time or whatever they were doing. But that did not last, right? That yeah. whole testing the Olympia thing did not last. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, I don't have anything really bad to say about him. I mean, he might be a douchebag, but I don't know. He's At least he's freaking not lying, you know, and if he is, I don't think it's that far-fetched of a lie. You know, it is possible that he's doing the opposite, too, and he's exaggerating how much he, he's yeah. taking to get a rise out of people. Like Dan was saying, I mean, at some point, there's got to be diminishing returns. Um, and he might be, but I mean, I think still the send-home the, the send message is they're taking lots of stuff. Right. You know? No, that's right. And, and in fact, it, at least it's a ballpark in grams. Like, you know, yes. like, like I've laughed about before, you know, clinically, you, you could you dose those things in milligrams, right? Yes. Not grams. Yeah. Grams, you dose yeah. protein in grams. You know? Yeah. Well, there you go. They just got confused. Yeah. Oh, maybe that's it. He mixed it up with his protein powder. Exactly. I don't know. I mean, he goes on to talk about, you know, later in life, he said, I don't plan on doing this forever. And he talks about what he'll do later in life. He's like, no, I won't ever be off because I've been on since I was 18. He's like, later in life, I'll go to a replacement dose, you know, and this and that. And But, you know, who knows? You know, I've heard you know, that before, know. too, from some of the people that we've spoken to, uh, Phil, which is, which is, I'm like, aren't you worried? I mean, you're going to come, the testicular atrophy for a decade? I mean, they're not going to bounce back. What are you going to do? You know, and he's, oh, just get a replacement. You know, and I, I don't know. It, there is a lot of that more is better mentality. So. And up to a point, it's, it's effective or they wouldn't do it. Yeah. You know. I don't know. I mean, from being on the inside, though, I'm always amazed because uh, I've been on the inside of both to a bit. It amazes me the levels of performance-enhancing drugs in bodybuilding versus strength sports. The bodybuilders take it to a whole different level, you know, <laughs> from what I've heard. Well, and you've got to think, too, there are certain things like GH uh, and some of the um – you know, I don't know if you mentioned DMP or, you know, clenbuterol, some of these other things. They might have some strength effects or hypertrophic yeah. kind of eventual strength, but the bodybuilders are looking for different kind of graininess and conditioning. And, I mean, I remember the first time I talked to a guy backstage who was um, using growth hormone. And yeah. he was he was not a bad person. You know, people make all these sort of judgments. I mean, he brought his kids up on stage and he was done everything. But I remember a guy that I was at the event with, he actually said, can I – touch your forearm he said it's not like i'm not weird i just i've never seen skin like pink cellophane before you know yeah. and and um this guy not obviously i'm not gonna mention his name but um he looked outrageous i've never seen someone so ripped uh and rob has talked about the effects of gh before too i mean there are there are a few cocktails that are as effective as something like an androgen plus growth hormone 
you know, I'm, I mean, I've heard Kevin Yaroshevsky talk about that before at conferences and whatnot. And um, I mean, from a, almost from a, a research and clinical perspective, of course, but yeah. um, unreal, unreal dose numbers. And you know what? Doses. I was going to do a, a show at some point um, on Iron Radio here on just doses, not not illicit things necessarily, but just yes. almost anything. And I mean, that ballparks what some of these guys are capable of, I guess. Holy yeah. cow. Yeah. Even just the GH, 12 I use a day? Yeah. That yeah. guy that I was referring to with skin like pink cellophane, he was taking four I use every other day. At least that's what yeah. he said. Yeah. So, wow. Okay, Dan, uh, sorry for the tangent there. Yeah, no problem. Um, let's uh, just start with your uh, origin story a little bit. That's how we usually do this. Um, as I mentioned to everybody, uh, Dan is a certified strength conditioning specialist. Uh, he has a background in exercise phys, um, at least one master's degree working on another uh, postdoc uh, under uh, Mark Tronopolsky, I think. Is that right? Yep. Um, so very impressive credentials. So uh, maybe tell listeners why this path. I mean, you're a highly credentialed um, dude. Um, how do you go to such an extent? What started all this? Yeah, it's kind of funny because I think people think that when you do this kind of, I mean, because I spent you know a lot of years in school that you have this kind of plan that you're you're following, you're sticking to, and it really wasn't that. I mean, when I was 16 years old, I kind of got a gym, uh, a job at the local gym, picking up the weights, and I was into working out. And you know, when I turned 18, I really had no idea what I was going to do with myself. And at the time, everyone thought I was going to go, you know, try and do something with music. Um, but it just so happened that the kinesiology classrooms were conveniently located above the weight room at the university. So oh. <laughs> I went, you know, I was a meathead at the time, but so I went into kinesiology. And as I was there, I kind of realized that a lot of the stuff that we talked about, you know, that you saw in the magazines, it, it seemed like we had everything worked out. And then when I was talking to the professors and, you know, I discovered PubMed, I realized we didn't actually know as much as we thought we did at the time. And so that led me to do my master's. I did that with Phil Gardner at the University of Manitoba. And then once I finished that, um, pretty much if you're reading any ex-phys papers today, a good chunk of them are coming out of McMaster University. It's it's kind of the hub for kinesiology research in Canada. We've got, you know, Stu Phillips. So if you're reading anything on protein synthesis, they're at McMaster. Mark Tarnopolsky has, you know, my boss right now because I'm doing a postdoc with him, just a ton of publications on skeletal muscle. We've got, you know, uh, Marty Gabala. So he does all the interval yep. um, no Marty, training no research. Bar. They're all at Mac, so it was kind of a natural fit. So I came down here to work with Mark, and I finished my PhD, and, and then I was looking at things to do, and, and so I signed on to do a postdoc with him. But when I was doing my PhD, I was also teaching anatomy in the physiotherapy department, and I just kind of got a, got hooked there. And, you know, there's a lot of guys that are having movement issues, and one of the things that I always ran across is we wanted to study people that did lifelong strength training, but it's really hard to find guys in their 50s and 60s and 70s that are still lifting weights, and, and a big factor in that is, is that – you know, they're, they're getting injured. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so kind of transitioning to do physiotherapy at the same time kind of seemed like a natural fit for me. Uh, so now I'm, I'm kind of burning the candle at both ends. So I, I'm doing what it takes to be licensed as a physiotherapist in Canada, and I'm keeping my research going, doing a, doing a postdoc, and started up the website so I can start having some conversations with people online about training and my thoughts on it. So right. got a lot going, but it's, it's certainly, uh, certainly going well. No, great. Now, a lot of the listeners might be curious about um – your personal adventure with the weights. I mean, how has that evolved since you started at that gym? Yeah, I mean, it, it's certainly been a lot. I think kind of one of the defining moments was, was for me that kind of set me on the quest academically was that I, I tore both my pecs bench pressing. Oh, 
Uh, it was, they're both partial tears. They're grade two strains, but at the time we couldn't repair them. I had MRIs done and, and it's irreparable. And so it's kind of really affected me in the sense that I'm never going to be a big bench presser again. Uh, so I've kind of switched my focus. I mean, I don't compete in strongman or I don't compete in powerlifting or bodybuilding, but I've always been just, just really passionate about building muscle, getting strong, just kind of being the, the complete package training wise, being able to do it all. So I kind of, if you go, I, I actually have a, you know, my wife is very tolerant of my, of my hobby here. So, um, you know, I've got a basement, I've got logs, I've got all the bars that, you know, I've, I've broken the bank at elite FTS a few times, which is, which is even more painful when you live in Canada. Cause you really yeah. have to pay for shipping. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but so I think it's just a bit of that and that, you know, it's kind of, it's gone how a lot of people go. I mean, sometimes you're really, it's hypertrophy and you're, you're really feeling that for a while it's strength or it's a mix of mix of both so it's it's kind of really just kind of a fluid progression for me and i mean right now because i've got a lot of things going so um you know, it's it's more of a maintenance focus on you know trying to maintain where i'm at and, and keep things going gotcha uh yeah so you mentioned uh before we hit record that some of what you were doing uh research wise in the past had to do with aging are are you looking at sort of um sarcopenia and trying to prevent muscle loss then or is it not really related to muscle preservation yeah, it definitely is. I mean, so the bulk of my, my thesis is three studies, and there's actually a few of them that were published because I teamed up with another guy uh, who did a few others. And what we did was really interesting because we know that everybody loses muscle mass as they age. You can stop it with training, but you still lose it to a certain degree, just to a lesser extent right, if, yep. if you're active. But a few of the things that have never been done is, is what happens if we take uh, the best of the best of the elderly. And so one of the things that we did was we took – older guys, so guys in their 60s and 70s, that, and we matched them for lean body mass with our young guys. So these are guys on an even playing field. We just gave them a single strength training belt, and we take muscle biopsies, and, and we kind of look at what goes on in their muscle after the fact. Because there's a lot out there that, you know, there's a concept of anabolic resistance that, that elderly muscle just doesn't respond in the same way as young muscle. Right, yeah. And so we certainly saw that things like satellite cells, which we know are, are important for muscle repair and regeneration, those were delayed because you, you need to increase the number of satellite sites. Those were delayed. But a lot of what I looked at was kind of the mitochondria, which we know produce energy in the cells. And we know that those get damaged with age. And it's often thought that if you want to increase your mitochondria, you endurance train. But we're starting to think now that if you're severely detrained and, you, and you're elderly, you can resistance train and still improve your mitochondrial content. So that's kind of more what I looked at, but still very relevant in the strength training world. I see. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, it, it's it does sort of fly in the face of the freshman 101, you know, do endurance work for uh, mitochondria and the, the resist, resistance exercise is so anaerobic in nature. Maybe there's not as much of that aerobic component to cause the biogenesis of the mitochondria or whatever, but... Yeah, that's cool. For sure. Yeah. And I, but I think what the bigger factor is, is just are you detrained? If you're sedentary and you've done nothing, then strength training can be a mitochondrial stimulus for you. Right. Yeah, it makes sense because you're going from zero, less than zero in a way. Exactly. Yeah. Have you looked at inflammatory markers and all that sort of thing as far as the, the sarcopenic effects or pretty much just like uh, some of the, the biochemistry? Yeah, so we do have one study out. It, I'm not the first author on that. It's by Brian McKay. He was doing his PhD at the time, and, and we teamed up. And he had characterized the fact that these satellite cells, they seem to grow slower. They, or they double their numbers slower in the old guys. And, and one of the things he found was that interleukin-6, 
which is involved, it's a cytokine involved in the inflammatory pathways. Mm -hmm. It's chronically elevated in the older guys. And you actually need a pulse of IL-6 after you strength train your muscle to get things going. But if you have it chronically elevated, we think that that's partially related to the, to the delay. So I think, you know, inflammation is such a hot topic right now, but I think it's very important in, in multiple conditions, it's aging, obesity. I think it really is impacting how your muscle adapts to strength training for sure. Yeah, and, you know, I think it confuses some people too because they start to learn about whether it's prostaglandins or interleukins or whatever, that a certain amount, like you say, of inflammation is important you know, for the cascade to happen or the remodeling or whatever, but chronic elevations, uh, that's a different story, right? You start older muscle is more inflamed and fatty infiltrated and all that sort of thing. Is that right? I think, I think you nailed it right there. It's, it's the pulse is what it's all about. So if you get a pulse of these things, post exercise, that's beneficial. But if you keep them around elevated chronically, that's when the system starts to fail and everything goes haywire. Well, I don't want to tangent too far, but let me ask you one thing then. What about something like people who take high-dose fish oils? I know a lot of our listeners do that. Um, mm-hmm. Because of their ability to reduce inflammation, <coughs> could those harm uh, hypertrophy, do you think, in the long run? Or wh- what do you know about that? You know, it's, it's, it's something I've been thinking about, and I really want to write about it. But there's just, you know, I have it's, – it's a very theoretical link between what's impairing hypertrophy – and I've really been thinking it not from a fish oil angle, but from an obesity perspective. I mean, one, that's a hot topic right now, too. But we also know that they tend to have things like elevated IL-6 and, and chronic inflammation. And so I've often thought that that impairs it. Now, with the fish oil, um, there's been some stuff with antioxidants suggesting that if you take excessive antioxidants, you suppress the adaptations to exercise training. Mm. Um, so I think it, it's possible you might see something with, with the fish oils, but again, it, it comes down to just really, if you're taking fish oils, but you still get that inflammatory pulse post-exercise, everything's probably going to be okay. You know, I just, I just haven't seen anything specifically addressing whether fish oil would, you know, kind of attenuate or abolish that, that pulse with exercise. Right. You know, what's so interesting about a lot of this is the acute versus chronic nature of these things. When we had, uh, we've had Nick Byrne on a few times, I'm guessing, you know, Nick, um, yeah, yeah. but, um, and we would ask him things like he'd say, you know, acutely it looks like ibuprofen, for example, uh, suppresses muscle protein synthesis. But chronically, uh, you kind of see the opposite. It's almost a mild anabolic agent. Um, you know, and that just I, I think that causes a lot of confusion. But maybe listeners should just hopefully understand that, you know, science doesn't have all the answers at once. You make one discovery and it's, you got three more questions from it. You know, that, so. I mean, that's a great point because that was a fairly recent paper. I think it came out the the trappy one of the Trappy brothers was on there, where, where they, it was in the elderly that they saw enhanced hypertrophy on the, on the group taking ibuprofen, which, yeah, like as Nick pointed out, for sure, it's, it's counterintuitive. But, uh, you know, one of the things I'm wondering is that we know that ibuprofen acts to influence prostaglandin synthesis, and we know that IL-6 can regulate that. Mm-hmm. And so we did a study uh, where we exercised people after massage. It was exhaustive endurance exercise, but the principle maintains and we found that it attenuated IL-6, then we saw some enhanced mitochondrial signaling after that. Hmm. And, and so we often think that it's possible that massage might be acting in a similar way to these NSAIDs by attenuating IL-6. We also know that IL-6 is elevated in the elderly, and we saw that that impaired satellite cells. So it's possible that some of the ibuprofen data may be specific to the elderly or people that have some type of chronic inflammation. That's too early to say. So if you're a young guy, I probably wouldn't start megadosing ibuprofen. 
Um, so don't tell what was his name, Boston Rob. Don't tell him that because he might pick it up. But <laughs> you take a bottle at a time. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That's right. Wow, three hundred fifty milligrams is good. Three point five yeah. grams has got to be great. <laughs> He's gramming ibuprofen. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. No source correct. Okay. Uh, well, cool. Uh, I'll tell you what. We're going to go to break just for a few minutes, do a few uh, announcements. And when we come back, everyone, we're going to talk uh, to Dan about uh, eccentric exercise. He already mentioned satellite cells once. And uh, actually, we're going to have somebody on in January, Dr. Antonio, to talk about satellite cell activation and whatnot. But uh, I have some questions specific about eccentric exercise, uh, and especially the circles that uh, Dr. Ogborn runs in. Maybe he can even um, ask some of these guys, plant some seeds for me, because there's some questions for, sort of from the field that I would love to see answered with a study. Um, but I digress. We'll, we'll be right, right back. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry, and on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, we'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, you can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, it's Lonman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So, uh, whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook, uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website, and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media, and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. Hi, this is Dr. Lowry with an update on the protein book that you hear about in the ad at the end of the show. Uh, if you simply Google CRC Press and protein, uh, there's a new development. On the right side of the page, you can see ebook, and there's a purchase slash rent option. And the cool thing here is if you check that out now, because they have an agreement with Vital Book, uh, you can actually download the ebook for $69 US dollars. So that's 31% off the $99.95 uh, cover price. So that's pretty fantastic. $69, I think that's going to drop it into the affordable range for a lot of people. And you can even rent it. Uh, lower down the page, they have 180-day rentals and one-year rentals. So you can access the book in electronic format and get some of this juicy information. So thanks. Hi, this is Rob Fortney, and I'm here to ask that, as the holidays approach and your thoughts turn to giving, you consider your friends here at ironradio.org. Over the past several years, we've heard and read hundreds of listener comments hoping that Iron Radio stays on the air for years to come. We are here for you. But, like any other radio format, we're listener-supported. That's where you come in. For just $4 per month, you can become a sporting member. Keep your weekly dose of education, experts, and gen talk flowing. Just go to www.ironradio.org and click on the $4 monthly subscribe button near the bottom of the page or click the donate button at the right of the page for a one-time donation. 
you are the Iron Brother and Sister. Thanks for helping us create a place for better internet programming for all strength and muscle sports and a happy holidays. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Okay, everyone, we're back. It's Phil and Lonnie, and we're talking to Dr. Ogborn, Dan Ogborn, um, a Canuck. It's too bad that Rob isn't with us, uh, also Canadian. And, of course, uh, we're even part of a Canadian uh, podcast network. But uh, we're going to talk to Dan about eccentric exercise. There's some specific questions that I have for him. Uh, and let's just start with this this one. And, Dan, we'll all just sort of discuss this a little. Phil, by all means, chime in because I know yeah. you know what it's like to be sore and rocked, <laughs> have limited <laughs> range of motion or whatever. Um one of the things that I've talked about before with, uh, like, uh, John Mike when he's been on the show is um, how transferable. So if somebody does a lot of eccentric work, right, a lot of lowering movements, you know, lengthening contractions against uh, gravity, for example, um, and they get really strong doing that, how transferable is that? I mean, would that make an Olympic lifter better? Would it make a power lifter better? Or is that so specific it doesn't transfer very well? You know, I think it's, it's certainly a complicated area because there's a few arguments you could make. I mean, and I think the simplest one is just that your muscle only has so many motor units. And so, so if I recruit these motor units in eccentric exercise and they hypertrophy and they're bigger, and then I go to do another exercise that needs to use those same motor units, well, I might need less of them. To, I'll probably, if they're bigger, I'll need less of them produce a, to produce a you know, given level of force. Mm-hmm. So in, in that way, if, I, if I've changed the structure of motor units that are going to be used again anyway, then you could argue that there is a transfer. And I think, you know, if you look in the literature, you do see that eccentric training does result in concentric strength gains. I mean, it's not always consistent, but it, it is. It may not be as good as training concentrically. I think we can all relate, you know, principle of specificity. If, if you're going to be tested on a concentric, if you're going to have to lift a weight, the best way to train is to, is to lift that weight. Right. But I think yeah. there is a place. Eccentrics do transfer and do provide a degree of, of concentric strength if you use them only. But I wouldn't. It's not as as effective as training on the in the mode that you're going to be tested in. Right. Well, right, right, right along those lines. Let me ask you this then. So, let's say you're doing slow, you know, eccentric stuff. Um, could you run the risk, especially if you're an explosive type of uh, Olympic lifter or whatnot? Could you slow yourself down with that sort of thing? You know, it's a really good question, and it's something I started looking into earlier this year because I was very interested. I was writing a post on just tempo in general because it's not something that I've experimented with heavily in my training. And when I was looking at stuff on net for tempo, the most common recommendation you see is you need to have long eccentric time under tensions, so you need to lower weight slowly uh, to maximize growth. And every time I saw it offered up, it was – it was without a citation. There's no evidence for that. And I kind of looked into it and I found that, well, there really isn't much to support that. Oh. And I, and I think there's, it, I think in your previous podcast, Jonathan, Mike mentioned he was going to start looking at eccentric time under tensions in a study. And, and it's good that he's doing that because there really isn't very much stuff on there. 
Um, one of the advantages of, of the eccentric is, is that people think that you can preferentially recruit type 2 fibers, and, and there's some de- debate to that, but if you're in a sport where you need to move things fast, ideally you'd like to train those. But what we don't know is what happens when you start slowing that eccentric tempo. Do we still get that preferential recruitment, and how does it change? And, I mean, there's just so much we don't know, but I think that uh, you have to look at, at – at really what if you're you know if you're a power lifter if you're an olympic lifter what's the mode you're being tested in and can i come close to you know recapitulating that environment in the gym and, and there's not a lot of times when a when a slow eccentric kind of would transfer to those conditions right yeah from a specificity principle kind of point of view it doesn't make a lot of sense but well i mean that's where i would think you know though these type of movements would be an assistance move and I mean, I relate it to like I'm I'm starting to work with a lot of baseball players. In the past, I, I worked with some golf people and stuff and with strength training. And the biggest thing, the first thing I do to them is make them aware that I want them to continue their sport while we do this. Because if I take them and I just take like say I take a golf player and we put him on six months of freaking strength training and he gains twenty pounds of muscle, and he goes back to his golf game. His mechanics are all different. Mm-hmm. Now his golf game sucks. Now, if we take an Olympic lifter, he keeps Olympic lifting, but we add on some eccentric training, he's not going to slow down because he's still Olympic lifting. You know what I'm saying? Now, if we take that same Olympic lifter, okay, we're just doing do eccentrics for six months. Yeah, I think he'd slow down. You know? Okay. Well, he stopped doing his activity. Well, let me ask you both know? of you guys then, because that's, that's sort of the crux of this, is uh, if, if eccentric exercise is probably best for hypertrophy, you know, because of the muscle remodeling or satellite cell involvement or whatever it is. Um, how do you program that? So, Phil, you're a fan then of doing it at the same time. You're working on a, a bigger engine at the same time you're working on the specialization of firing that engine. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, no matter what, when I'm doing a – let's like me right now, I'm just out of a meet. So I'm in the stage where I'm just I'm, – I'm maintaining and then I'll be moving into building up and then I'll be moving into getting strong. So even now in my maintenance phase, or somebody that I have, I'm working with in a we're going to get bigger phase, we still have very brief training. The first 10 minutes that we're there, we're usually still going fairly heavy and fast. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and we're staying, and then 90% of our training then is geared at the other. Like, okay, now let's get bigger. Let's get the reps in. Let's get the time under tension. But I, I keep some of that in, and then... It shrinks down as we get closer to the event. Okay, so you tip the scales back and forth. You don't eliminate yes. one or the other. No. Dan, what do you think about from the science perspective? Do you think there's times of the year where you should just focus on hypertrophy? Let me give you an example just to set the stage with this. So because you can use more in an eccentric movement than in concentric, right, because you can lower more weight than you can hold steady or lift, uh, you can use supra-maximal loads. And you would think that could be a pretty cool stimulus for hypertrophy right so uh, how how would you go about that yeah i mean i think phil kind of nailed it um when you look at the research studies obviously there's a lot of strict controls in place so if i'm training if i'm looking at the effect of say velocity on eccentrics the people are only training with eccentrics and and really that that doesn't extrapolate to what we do in the gym because for the most part most of us sprinkle in multiple techniques if you're a power lifter most of your training is probably going to be geared towards powerlifting. But if you're doing some assistant work, you know, if you're bringing up a weak body part or something and you want to put a little bit more size on it, 
then you're going to probably, for that training, it's going to look a bit more like something that a bodybuilder would do. So you might be emphasizing more fatigue and time under attention, whereas your previous or your earlier training in the day might be emphasizing things like load or you know bar velocity or something like that. Yeah. So I think you know that's definitely the case is that it's not going to be an either-or situation. Now, as, as for the super maximally centrics, I kind of feel like the biggest problem with them is execution. And I think that when most people are doing eccentrics, and I think this is why I kind of stumbled across that recommendation that people are, are trying to slow down eccentrics because they're trying to accentuate them. They're trying to spend more time in eccentric. Because mm-hmm. unless you've got some great training partners, it's a bit of a pain to overload your eccentric, right? Because, I, mean, I mean, I've got these old school weight releasers here, but most gyms don't have those. Right. And, and you need people there to help you load and unload the bar. It becomes mm-hmm. pretty difficult. So I think it's one of those things, even if super maximal eccentrics are more beneficial, and certainly we know that eccentrics can, can promote hypertrophy, and if you're doing coupled concentric and eccentric contractions, those eccentrics are o- overloaded, you do get more growth. I think they, they lose out in, in the execution or the practicality of the technique. So you think there'll be a, um, a movement breakdown as far as like the muscles that are firing and the, maybe the joint position and all that sort of thing because it's so because it's so heavy it's just hard to do you, you have to have a crew with you but to to do it right i mean someone's got to pick the bar back up off you for most of the time sure mm-hmm. or you've got people there that are either stripping plates off the bar for you so you can raise it again it's it, it is it can be difficult to perform but mm-hmm. i've always so, been fascinated by it frankly uh the fact that you can actually you know work out with more than a hundred percent of your maximum that's just kind of a fascinating concept to me i guess you know and it, it would be cool to see i don't know if you're lifting at 120 or 130 percent of your maximum do you get strength improvements faster do you build muscle faster I, i'm not sure that work's really been done much has it you know i don't think it has either because I, I mean a lot of the eccentric work is done isokinetically which is it's kind of limited in its application to what we're lifting in the gym. Yeah, yeah. But there, I mean, there is there is a there's a study or two where they've done, uh, you know, eccentric overload with concentric contractions versus concentric and regular eccentrics at the same load as the concentrics. And <laughs> I think there is a there is a slight advantage to to having the eccentric. Well, I mean, obviously you need to have the eccentric there for it, but I think there's probably a slight advantage. But again, I think it's difficult to execute. Yeah, and I think maybe I should point out for listeners too. We're we're talking about uh, almost a nuance in a way because anytime you lift, you're doing eccentric work. Uh, you know, I mean, unless you're doing something almost like some Olympic lifters where they punch up the bar and they just back away and let it fall from yeah. arm's length. But I'm j- not going to lie to you; I'm pretty lazy and I like to drop my deadlifts. Do you? <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, but you know, oftentimes I would say I would argue that. You know, there's a there's a up and a down portion to the lift. There's a concentric and an, and an eccentric kind of portion to this sort of thing. But we're just sort of thinking about focusing on the eccentrics uh, and that sort of thing. Now, one of the things we were talking about over break was whether or not the eccentric kinds of lifts, because of the soreness that induces and sort of the metabolic ramifications and white blood cells moving in and muscle remodeling and all this stuff, whether or not that would potentially extend the time course for protein synthesis so instead of a day day and a half of of elevated protein synthesis maybe it goes on for two or three days and that's the kind of work that i'd love to see done uh but dan you're saying that's that's unknown at this point well i'm not sure if it's unknown it's definitely it's unknown to me (laughs) i can guarantee you that okay Mm -hmm. but uh i mean i think you know if i were to make a kind of theoretical argument we know that when you really damage a muscle you reduce its insulin sensitivity. You, re- you reduce its glucose uptake. Yep. Mm-hmm. 
So if you've got refractory things going on there, I mean, it, it's certainly be possible if you're going to have an amino acid issue and that might impact um, protein synthesis acutely. Mm-hmm. I think it's certainly a possibility. We've definitely seen that you get differential protein synthetic profiles uh, with different like training intensities and whether you train a failure or not. I mean, you know, Stu Phillips, I mean, Nick Bird was involved in a lot of this, so he's probably talked about it. And it, probably a better person to talk about it than me, but... Um, you know, we know that you can see differential fractions of protein synthetic, protein synthesis and say the sarcoplasmic fraction versus the myofibrillar. Those can vary, and so I wouldn't be surprised if we do sometimes see some type of variation, or somebody has shown anyway that it, that can happen with you know really heavy eccentric training. Right? Can you explain that to listeners for us the different fractions and how the the protein synthetic time course? You know, the, how you can have protein synthesis in a muscle uh, in one compartment versus another? Can you just explain that for us? I, I mean, what they're doing is they basically, I mean, I, I'm not the best for this, but it's, they've been giving them radioactively labeled proteins, amino acids. And so, so you can see that they've been taken up in the muscle. And, and so once you've done the training and you've given them this and, and these, are, these isotopes are integrated into the proteins you have there, and, and then you can do differential centrifugation. So you separate the fractions so you know that, okay, these are probably proteins from the sarcoplasmic fraction. These would be my myofibular proteins, so my contractile proteins. And so you can see roughly the rate of appearance versus the rate of disappearance, and you can see, uh, you know, kind of roughly what's going on in, in different compartments from a protein synthetic standpoint. Right. One of the things where that gets confused, though, is people often interpret that as, okay, I'm getting sarcoplasmic hypertrophy or myofibrillar hypertrophy, which is not necessarily the case with those techniques. Okay. Yeah, I, I think in general, right, the, the value of tracers is that you can trace them to where they ended up, right? Exactly. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. Um, all right, let's see what else I have on my list here. Um, here's one. I'll start with Phil, and I'm going to come at you, Dan, as well with this one, so get ready. Uh, Phil, do you? Uh, how do you use eccentric work in your own training? Boy. In my own, for me. Yeah, or, um, or do you not? I mean, I'm not going to be offended if you don't. <laughs> well, I mean, I have to at some point. You know, i got to go down in the squat. But, uh, um, yeah, I, I don't do a lot of dedicated eccentric training. I will do some holds, which is probably the closest thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not like super maximal. I don't do anything super maximal. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, like I said, I mean, I'll, I'll hold... I was just doing some the other day, some stiff-legged deadlifts where I'd, I'd go down and I'd hold them like two, three inches from the ground, and I'd just hold that position trying to strengthen my back to hold that position. Okay, that yeah, I, I was going to ask you, so, yeah, why are you doing the isometric holds? Yeah, just to strengthen strengthen areas. You know, for that, it strengthened my mid and lower back Okay. okay. to hold position. Um, you know, I can do that, though, with submaximal load. You know, I'm, I'm using 50 60% and just holding, holding for time and... Uh, just trying to hold the correct posture position that I want against the load. Okay. So, yep. how about you, Dan? Yeah, I mean, eccentric overloads. It's not. It's not a huge part of my training. Um, you know, I do have the classic weight releasers. I like them. I think they've kind of been forgotten about. I'm sure a lot of people listening probably don't even know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I know exactly. What, yeah. <laughs> but uh, you know, it's just. I mean, they used to sell them on Elite. I'm not sure where they are now, but. Um, and they just basically, they're little stands that hang from the bar. And, and when you lower the bar, they eventually hit the ground and the hooks come off the bar. And so the weight is off. And then you only have what left what you've loaded on the bar originally. But I think that, you know, it is kind of a problem of execution. I think that the way that people have adopted it by doing slow eccentrics 
I think that's probably the easiest way to get it done in the gym. But I, I don't think it's necessarily doing everything that people are claiming that it does from a hypertrophy standpoint anyway. And I mean, we know in the literature that, you know, if you're going to be, if you're looking for strength and power, that training with slow contractions is definitely not the way to go. Right. Okay. Yeah. So you're not afraid of uh, more explosive or, or more rapid uh, eccentrics then? Yeah, I think to a point. I mean, as long as they're controlled, for sure. Um, okay. I mean, I opt for. I mean, I don't really tie out my my lifts, but I, I don't think a slow and controlled eccentric is a bad thing. But I think that controlled is the emphasis. Slow, not necessarily. Right, and I I think that's a great point you're making too. Is that people when they do focus on the negative, they probably slow down and and they try to feel it and you know accentuate it and. Um, that may be sort of bastardizing the original idea of the eccentric, like the, the bar velocity, for example, and the downward motion, you know. So. I think that's exactly it. I think we've kind of made the two terms synonymous, that a slow eccentric is the same as an overloaded eccentric, and I don't think that is a fair assumption at all. Yeah. I'll admit, I'm a, I tend to be guilty. I mean, throughout my lifting career, I have done a lot of eccentric types of stuff, and I tend to do it slowly, you know, Um because I was after the hypertrophy, and I mean, strength was always a nice side effect. I know that's blasphemy probably for some of the power lifters, but, you know, I just wanted the, the growth. And I was sometimes I wanted to spare my joints in the process, you know, and that sort of thing. Well, yeah, I should put a caveat on this and say that I've torn both pecs, so, you know, take my velocity recommendations with a train <laughs> <laughs> That's right, okay. Probably should have put that disclaimer at the start of the interview, but what can you do now? But listeners know, Phil and I, have we have our share of, uh, yeah. of, of ruptures, too, so. <laughs> All right. No, I mean, I'll get in, like, right now, I'm in a stage where, in my like, on my squats, I'm doing very controlled squats, but I, I again, wouldn't consider that. The definition of eccentric training that we were talking about. Well, sometimes it's almost for a neural purpose. Because I'll do stuff like sit in the hole, you know, and not try to get that stretch reflex. You know what I mean? Um, Sometimes I will try to do that on purpose. You know what I mean? I'm almost trying to play with motor unit recruitment and nervous system types of things as opposed to um, muscle tissue there, you know. And I don't know. I I think Dan's right. I mean, I think maybe I would use it more if it was easier. Yep. But you got to have a whole crew, and you can only do one rep. <laughs> you know? Well, especially if you're for you. by yourself and have weight releases, you got to do one rep, and then you have all this work of loading those damn things back on. Because I've used them too. <laughs> right? Yeah. I'm lazy, man. I don't. I'm so lazy. I bought a deadlift jack because I got tired of loading my bar and I've been picking up. <laughs> so. <laughs> and you know what? We need to keep this in perspective. I was about to say, you know, Phil. I mean, if you've got nearly a 700 pound squat, and you're going to do 20 or 30 percent more than that in the eccentric, you know, this starts yeah. to get nutty, right? It gets gets a little nutty. Um, in fact, uh, Dan, I actually did some of what you were talking about. I, I read some of that early work. I mean, uh, Mike Sherman, uh, I think Kevin Yershevsky did some of this, uh, John Ivey, uh, about how sore muscles don't take up carbohydrates very well. You know, glycogen resynthesis is poor and, and glucose uptake. And I actually looked at some of that stuff. Uh, and to do that, we were doing multiple sets of 90% loads, purely eccentric. We used a Smith machine, you know, so we could sort of do that without um, – killing people um, yeah. but we we made them very sore upper and lower body with benching and squatting with the smith machine and and we just did like glucose tolerance tests you know we, how much higher is your glucose afterwards or is is there more insulin that needs secreted you know um after you've done you know 24 hours after you've done this eccentric work and i'm telling you we were so sore like crutches sore 
you know, doing that kind of stuff. But Rob and I wrestled with this uh, a couple of months ago when he and I were on the show together. And, you know, just like with the doses of anabolics we were talking about to sort of bring this back around, you got to think there's a point of diminishing returns. You know, there's so much talk in the magazines about trash this, annihilate that. And, I mean, if you have maximal protein synthesis with a less dramatic um, protocol, you know, then why why do you have to, why would Phil have to put a thousand pounds on the bar and get everybody in his gym, you know, all huddled around so he could get that rep in, you know, when he might be able to get the same benefits with without having to do that super maximal kinds of stuff. And I think I think that's the point there. I mean, there's multiple stimuli that may contribute to hypertrophy, but we don't have a great handle on what's a cause and what's a consequence. And I mean, Brad Schoenfeld put out a pretty great review on muscle damage in his relationship to growth. And so, I mean, it, obviously you see protein synthesis increase in fibers that aren't damaged. And, and so I don't think that is the predominant stimulus for, right. for growth. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think it, it probably w- would get to a point where it's definitely counterproductive. Yeah. I mean, you're going to be training once every three weeks by the time you're, you're recovered, right, after that. So. Right. Now, Dan, are you mid-30s now? How old are you? I am. I'm 30 on the dot. Oh, okay. So, yeah, but uh, I imagine you've been around long enough to realize that the magazines are full of that kind of hyperbole. You know what I mean? Annihilate this and trash that. And um, and I'll, I'll be honest. I've been guilty myself. If, if I don't get at least a little sore the next day, that sort of, you know, delayed onset kind of soreness, I, I almost feel like maybe I didn't do enough. Um, but I really need to get my head away from that, right? Because like you're saying, that's not requisite for hypertrophy. So. You know, it's it's a tough call because I agree. I mean, I think it's a teenage rite of passage. You grow up reading the magazines and you just, you know, you spend three hours in the gym trashing yourself. I think everyone kind of goes through that phase. And for the most part, a lot of us do end up growing a little bit in the end. But um, it's hard to say. I mean, maybe that muscle damage and that little feeling of stiffness is a consequence of the training regardless. That's going to be there if you've trained enough. And it's really a tough area because we, we can't say conclusively. And I don't think we ever will be able to say you, you must have – x amount of damage and you know i often see now you see these really really specific training recommendations that are making recommendations based on subcellular adaptations and so i've been involved in the science now and it's just kind of like where the hell are you guys getting your information because i know the experiments that you would have to do to get that information mm-hmm. and they just don't exist or they're not possible it's just and so i think it comes down to it's like will you probably feel some damage and so on sure is that slowing down your gains? Probably not. I wouldn't lose sleep over it. And I'm with you. I like it too. I need to feel it. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a kind of a feedback. I, you know, once we actually did a time course and we were looking at, you know, like leukocyte subsets, how your white blood cells go up, you know, uh, over the next couple of days, neutrophils at first, then later monocytes and, and this and that. And we were trying to correlate or like enzyme release, just creatine kinase, different damage markers. And we were trying to look for correlations between that and soreness and, um, it didn't always pan out very well. I mean, it, this isn't directly protein synthetic stuff, you know, but it was, uh, I don't know. It, it left me undecided about a lot of this stuff, except like you, I like to be sore somehow psychologically. And Rob's always pointing that to, you know, you, you can't forget the psychological component of this, that it's somehow satisfying. Uh, and I don't know, Phil, you did physique kinds of stuff early on. Yeah. How did you get away from that? desperate urge to feel a little crushed or did you I not guess, get away from it ugh. i got stronger 
And it got to the point where I couldn't push things too far because then things would break. You're in the range right now where it's not your muscles that are a problem, it's you breaking your bones. Yeah. I got to the point where I started hurting things and was like, man, I gotta, I gotta back off because I like it too. I like going in and annihilating myself. But, you know, I mean, I'd go in there and you, you can only do so many like reps with a 650 pound deadlift, and and then go on and do something else. I, I just had to back myself off because I was I was burning myself and blowing myself up. And yeah. I, I, sometimes I wonder if this is one of the things that might separate bodybuilders from powerlifters a little. I, I, I'm always curious, you know, how much do powerlifters seek that crushed, you know, super sore, use the handrail kind of feeling? Well, at times it, we do. Like right now I'm going through a stage where I do. Like the heaviest things I'm touching is percentage-wise 75%. And I, I am going to get sore kind of thing. I'm, I'm But I'm... That's not really my goal. It happens because I'm looking to get a lot more volume in because I'm looking to get bigger. You know? Oh, <laughs> I'm, oh yeah. I'm yeah. in that season away from, you know, I did three months of nothing but, like, five reps was cardio. So, <laughs> you know, yeah. So, like, for instance, I did a set of 17 with 480 on squats. And it was, woo! You know, oh, I, my what, God, was, Phil. That's crazy. I was, it was my lungs and the, the lactic acid that stopped me, you know? Because I'm not used to that. So, you know, I'm going through stages of that. And, yeah, I'm sore, you know. Right. So I think it's opposite of bodybuilders and powerlifters. And when we've talked about this before, the, the, the season and, and off-season kind of flip. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, when we're off-season, we're bodybuilders. As we get closer to season, we're going for strength. And the opposite, you know. Right. Yeah, as bodybuilders approach a, a contest, right, they're uh... – they're doing more reps and this and that. In the off season, they're getting big. They're 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 heavier. Yeah, heavier. And, uh, and they're getting stronger. Right. So, right. No, I remember just kind of case in point. The last time I competed, there was a bunch of guys backstage, and there's sort of a bragging match of how much they could do with 315 in the squat. You know, so it might not be four or 500, but you know, these guys are like I do. You know, I do two sets of 20 with 315. I'm just like, oh my god, that just blows my mind. You know, I mean, I would be so sore. I'd yeah, <laughs> I'd have to call an ambulance. It'd be bad. Oh, it's but a- there's something good about that, especially for me. It's like a, after taking five months to get ready for that meet, it's like I want to do something different, man. <laughs> I want to oh, hit yeah. some reps and not worry about so much the load on the bar. Like right now, I'm doing just automatic training. It's like I go in and I call my weight that day by how it feels, and it's got to be a load I can hit at least eight times. Okay. And if okay. if I'm feeling bad, I'll go light that day and just rep it out for twenty. You know, right? Yeah. So. It's like you said, and that's more of a psychological thing. And it's yeah, let's get sore for a little while. And I, it's a different sore. Like when I'm in that heavy zone, I'm joint sore. Right now, I'm my joints are happy, but I'm muscular sore. Right. So. Right. No, that makes sense. Yeah. You know, uh, Dan, if you know anybody who's a sports psych person, I think that's something we've been sadly lacking actually on Iron Radio. We talked to a lot of nutrition and metabolic kinds of or muscle fizz type people, but. Uh, you know, you can't ignore these psychological things. I mean, you yourself, you know, uh, you've got um, – Dan's got more degrees in a thermometer, and he's, <laughs> and he's still looking for soreness. You know, there's always that psyche uh, to deal with. So I think it's huge, but I think a lot of what we're dealing with is delayed gratification, and, and we don't necessarily have great outcome measures in the gym. I mean, you could – if you're training for hypertrophy – I mean, can you really tell that you, your biceps are bigger over six weeks or over four weeks or over two weeks? Yeah. 
you probably can't, but you need something to, to let you know that, or to at least to make you feel that you've done something. And for a lot of people, that's soreness. Does that mean soreness is an indicator of muscle growth or that you're increasing strength? No. But if that's what keeps you training, why, you know, I mean, we can question the relationship between soreness and growth and soreness and strength and hypertrophy. Yeah. But if it keeps you training at the end of the day, that's what's going to keep you training. And, you know, I, I suppose at least you know you didn't underdo it. You know, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, well, I wanted to thank you uh, for coming on. I really appreciate it, Dan. Yeah, it was great. I appreciate you guys having me on here. I've been looking forward to it. Yeah. yeah Fun stuff. Uh, everybody, uh, I will probably wait till next week to offer. Rob did that CD review. I've been dangling that carrot for a while now, but um, we'll have the Fortress CD review next time. Uh, I'm not sure if he's going to be on again or not. So th- that way you'll get your little dose of Fortress. I got one more thing. Okay. It's, they'll, well, they won't be able to use it, but the, the shakers I mentioned last time. We got enough of them, so I'll be ordering them tomorrow. So the last time to order them is tonight, so they won't get this until Saturday, so they'll already be ordered, but if you ordered one, thank you. So Because <laughs> we, 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 we reached the minimum, so I'll get those cooking oh, sweet. and get those out to people. So Rock on. And Rock that's on. it. So thanks a lot. Dan, thanks thanks again for coming on. It was great talking to you. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Take care, everybody. Until next week. Hey, sports nutrition fans, join us in beautiful Clearwater Beach, Florida, June 20 and 21 for the 11th annual ISSN Conference and Expo. You'll learn the latest, greatest sports nutrition from the best minds in the business. Some of our speakers include Juan Carlos Santana, Dr. Mark Tarnopolsky, Gina Lombardi, and many, many more. You'll learn about intermittent fasting, how to exercise to offset poor eating, and also nutritional strategies for maintaining or gaining muscle mass. But the best part is you'll get to rub elbows with the best scientists in the business. The ISSN, why would you go anywhere else? Go to www.theissn.org for more information. That's www.theissn.org for more info. See you there. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.